This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey guys, it's Dr. Z. Today I have a very special guest. Uh, Dr. Eric Topol is a legend. He's a cardiologist. He's the editor-in-chief of Medscape. He's the head of research at Scripps in San Diego. Um, he is one of the great medical thought leaders around uh, the intersection of technology and medicine. And now, with our COVID-19 epidemic in full bloom, he's joining us today to talk about things we can actually do from a technology side to make things better. Eric, welcome, man. It's great to see you. Oh, hey, it's great to be with you, Zubin. Thank you so much. So are you in your undisclosed bunker uh, remote <laughs> location? Yeah, not to leave home. That's the key. That's all we can do right now since so much of this has been botched out. It, it, it really has. I mean, it, just to quickly start, what do you think is the biggest thing we did that botched this thing up? Well, it's unquestionably the delay in doing any tests uh, for almost two months. Uh, which is amazing because when you think back, we already had a patient diagnosed uh, January 21st in Washington, uh, the same day as uh, in South Korea. They did, uh, in the next uh, couple of months, before we got started, they did over 200,000 tests. They tracked every contact. They did systematic testing, and we did basically zero. So we let the outbreak take over, and now we're seeing the consequences of it. So now it's like a... Uh, we're so far behind the eight ball, and of course we're seeing now a death toll and a case uh, because of the profound spreading. And the question is, how can we uh, cope with it? How can we try to address it? Absolutely. If you think, do you think if we had done what Singapore and uh, Hong Kong and South Korea did early on, we might have had more targeted measures than we're having now, where we're having to institute more broad draconian measures late? Exactly, Zubin. So uh, South Korea is probably the model, but not far behind Singapore, Hong Kong, Taiwan, and even in China. You know, they, although they didn't uh, get the testing uh, done as quickly as they would have liked to, but they did get into lockdown mode pretty fast. So relative to where we uh, were are. So yeah, Asia has led the led the charge, particularly South Korea, and uh, they are a model for having flattened the curve and achieve this. Uh, control of the outbreak. That is the, the containment phase instead of the mitigation uh, aspect. Yeah, the containment phase. And the question then becomes, because you're kind of an expert on this, uh, one of the leading experts on this, they used an app, right, to contact, uh, to trace contacts and things like that. They used technology that some in the U.S. would feel invades privacy, but there was quite successful. Can you talk about that at all? 
Yeah, you're bringing up a really good point. This might not go over well in the U.S., and it's obviously a little different in Asia. But uh, for each of the South Korea uh, contacts that had any contact with an infected individual, they went through uh, their records. That is, every transaction, every business, every sale, every wherever they went to track every contact. Now, can you imagine? That's probably not going to happen too quickly in the United States. Is it not going to happen because we're culturally opposed to that kind of thing or we just don't have the technology or both? Well, it's, I think it's both. I mean, actually, the, the big uh, story today in The Economist, uh, the cover story is about, you know, the invasion of privacy is a means to, to, to work towards control. I mean, it's a, you know, there's two big uh, dilemmas that we have seen in this pandemic. The first was the economy versus the health of the public. Mm. Uh, and that's the, 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 the lockdown and basically shutting down the economy to preserve, um, the, prevent the spread and, and preserve lives. But the second one is the one we're facing right now also, which is invasion of privacy so we can tra- uh, trace spread, prevent spread, uh, versus you know the, what we have enjoyed largely is the lack thereof. That is, you know, the liberty and the extent of privacy in the U.S., which is, you know, much more than throughout Asia. Yeah, and I don't think you can overstate this tension in the American psyche. We have a moral palette in this country that's a little different than Asia. We do value the individual uh, a little bit more in that sense. And so there's the tension. But now what's happening, Eric, is because we value that, we're paying the price in our liberty to actually continue to go to work, to continue to go to school, to not be trapped in our houses. So it's a trade-off, and the Italians are seeing that too, although we're starting to see cases, the increase in cases level uh, a little bit off in Italy, and so hopefully their aggressive measures are starting to bear some fruit. Right. I mean, I think we're seeing the first signs that Italy may have peaked, at least for now, Uh, and that's, of course, encouraging, but the death toll they've had there as well as the, you know, the overrun of all their hospitals in the Lombardy region, the northern Italy, is just extraordinary. And you know, we're starting to see um, in New York a steeper curve of that than even in Lombardy or Madrid, the two hottest other areas in the world. So uh, it isn't looking good. Uh, you know, the, the spread, as it turns out, was probably a lot earlier than, than was known here because there was no testing. And it may even have annotated, of course, quite a bit than the January 21st date because we just saw from Italy yesterday that the first patient was probably January 1st. Uh, that is, even though uh, the first diagnosed patient was February 20th, you know, almost two months later. So, you know, we've had this virus uh, basically incubating in, in countries outside of China for some time. And that means there's a lot of spread. Well, and and I think what you're getting at is a good pivot to what we're going to talk about today, which is without data, without the testing, without being able to trace contacts, without being able to do aggressive local quarantine, without being able to um, um, institute measures that are more surgical, we are flying blind and we're way behind the curve. So what we're seeing in New York is now this exponential rise because the thing was spreading there silently for weeks. And uh, and we're going to see probably when we do a postmortem on all this exactly how bad it was. But now you're working on something. And the reason we're even hopping on a call is that you emailed me the other day and you're like, hey, we're doing this thing. Any thoughts on how we can get the word out? And I'm like, oh, yeah, I have thoughts. Uh, we have a little platform. Let's have a conversation. And you graciously took uh, some of your time to talk about it. Tell me about what you're working on and then we can talk about more uh, details on this. 
Right. Well, right now we know that there's going to be a lot more outbreaks going forward. And, you know, we're just seeing the beginning uh, arc of this uh, horrendous uh, pandemic in the U.S. So the question is, how can we get ahead of it? Because, you know, we can't go out and get 330 million people tested now, uh, not just for the virus, but also for the antibodies to the virus. So what, what is a better way to do that at scale? And so what we thought was recently we published that we could use the uh, Fitbit to predict the flu. We published that in Lancet Digital Health just uh, in February. Wow. And better than the CDC can predict, or at least as good. And that was in the 200,000 people that had Fitbits. Uh, and we said, well, wait a minute, you know, we could do this for COVID potentially. Um, and so what we did is very quickly, uh, within a matter of weeks, the team at Scripps uh, and also uh, our tech uh, partner at Care Evolution put together an app, put together a protocol, got an IRB approved. It's called Detect. And what that does is anyone who joins uh, will be getting their smartwatch, whether it's an Apple Watch or a Fitbit. Uh, the data will go uh, to the uh, servers to monitor whether their resting heart rate and other metrics are changing. Uh, and so we know that if there's a cluster in the U.S. where the resting heart rate is, is increasing, that would likely be the sign of an infection. Now, of course, it could be flu, it could be uh, COVID, most likely it would be COVID right now, but we think we'll have an ability to find uh, an outbreak before it spreads. And that is important. Now, um, the difference, Zubin, is there has already been validation of this tracking story, as you probably saw with uh, body temperature. Yeah, yeah, with KINSA, uh, the device, right, that's measuring, yeah. And they showed that you could get, for example, they predicted things were happening in Florida before they actually really got going. Mm. So uh, that's body temperature. But the problem with body temperature is you got to buy a Kinsa thermometer and you got to take your temperature, uh, you know, at least uh, once or twice a day. Now, uh, that's great. But the problem is there are no uh, thermometers of Kinsa or other smart thermometers even available right now, no less the smart watch is passive. I mean, you just wear it. You don't have to do anything. And we know there's about 80 million Americans that have uh, either uh, an Apple Watch or a Fitbit. So if we got that data in a large proportion of uh, Americans, it would be like your uh, traffic map. You know, the cars are sending a signal to see what the roads look like. And then we could get the same sort of read throughout the country about where is where is an outbreak likely to start uh, moving? And so that Detect app uh, is, uh, we just launched it yesterday, uh, March uh, 25th. And we already have had, you know, thousands of people join. We need actually the larger number, the better. More people we have, the better we can track. Uh, the. Uh, it's a research protocol, so there is a consent. There is voluntary sharing of data. But just to emphasize, since we already started talking about privacy, Zubin, these data will only be used for this purpose, never otherwise uh, be uh, transferred or, or, or anything else. So this is a COVID-specific uh, goal. We use the term uh, tracking virus outbreak because we don't know it's going to be COVID, of course. We just know that it's a, uh, likely to track a virus from our prior work. Um, and we don't want to presume that we're going to make the, the diagnosis. But, um, you know, hopefully this will be a segue to that. 
Okay. There, oh, wow. There's so much great stuff there. I'm going to try to parse this down for my very primitive <laughs> monkey mind and hopefully for uh, the audience. No, that's and, the furthest from the truth. And I want, and I want to make sure that if I say something that isn't correct, that you interrupt me. Okay. So let me, let me see if I understand this with a Fitbit or an Apple watch. Those are the two main devices you're using. Correct. Right. If people download the detect app and we'll put a link in for that. And I'll also put it in text on this video. Um, uh, with that app, they sign a consent. It's part of a research study. So it's IRB approved. So it's gone through this. You do say, okay, I'm going to give you this data, but it's going to be used for this purpose. Right. And the point of this is that if you're passive, there's 80 million people with these devices. If you're passively wearing the device and it's measuring your heart rate. And the reason we choose heart rate is that heart rate correlates somewhat to temperature and to Before. illness. It, it happens before, amazingly enough. Oh, okay, explain that to me. So even before yes. you start getting sick, your heart rate is the first indicator, like the canary. Yeah, the, the heart rate antedates the fever. It antedates the fever, so it comes before the fever. See, I took Latin, Eric, so I, your big words. <laughs> no, 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 but as you know, Zubin, the stress uh, of a body, uh, it first manifests the heart rate, and then later you'll see the body temperature go up, and of course it goes up even more. Uh, with uh, fever, but yeah, no, it's a really early sign, and it's so easy to capture from a wrist. And, and that and that makes a lot of sense, of course, since you're a cardiologist, everything's about the heart, Eric. I just want you to know that. So yeah, so the early increase in heart rate, then, if you catch that at a population level, this is why that's so important in my mind, because now the things we talk about, where what's our exit ramp from this uh, draconian uh, uh, response that we've ha we have to have now because we dropped the ball early on with lack of data. Well, if once we start to tamp it down, we can watch the emergence of hotspots and target new measures locally and surgically that use technology, use local quarantine, contact tracing, and social distancing locally to get these little pockets under control because we know there's a second wave that comes. We know that even if you control the first, you will get reinfection and re-outbreak if you don't uh, stay constantly vigilant. And it will help us understand geographically the spread of this, uh, this outbreak much better than we can now because we have no data. We have limited testing and terrible, yeah. terrible data. Did I summarize that correctly? You, you, you were spot on, Zubin, not no surprising. Formal training. No formal training. Uh, so. So your, the website is detectstudy.org, correct? Uh, I think that's right, I yeah. I think that's right. And so what I'll do is I'll send people there, and this is the call, let me just give them a call to action directly. Guys, if you go to this website and download the app and follow the instructions and sign the consent, and you have a Fitbit or an Apple Watch, you will be doing your part to help during this outbreak period. You will help our understanding. You will help save lives. And this is that important. So let me just interrupt right now and say, please do this. Okay. And we'll put links in the description back to you, Eric. So you guys got this done in record time. Was it hard? Were the bureaucratic, um, was the bureaucratic activation energy lowered for this or do you, did you just make it happen through sheer force? Well, it's just an amazing crew that uh, working on this that, you know, this was a uh, lack of sleep for a couple of weeks to, and, you know, we're very lucky at Scripps to have such a cooperative institutional review board, uh, one of the most uh, agile in the country. Uh, so, you know, a lot of things came together, a lot of um, amazing uh, people on the team. Uh, and of course, it was only because we had done that collaborative work with the Fitbit data set 
uh, Jennifer Radin was leading that project, that we knew that there's something really promising because the data that was so striking for predicting flu. And just going back on that, you know, Kinza was using that to predict flu outbreaks. And now they're using this temperature saying, oh, well, there's this outbreak in Florida, but that's not the right time for flu season. So it must be COVID. And so basically, you know, we know this is going to help, but there's other things that this could lead to, to, to emphasize this pandemic is going to go on for particular, this particular virus for uh, at least 18 months, if not a couple of years. And so for all that time, even when we do see some breaking the chain and flattening the curve, uh, it's going to come back. And so if we establish a means of passive surveillance at scale, we can stay ahead of this because then once you find a cluster and you maybe it's wrong, but you know, if it is on the money, if these people, group of people are experiencing resting heart rate because of uh, COVID, you can get in there and you could, you know, trace contacts. You could go, you could have precision uh, uh, isolation or quarantine. Um, so there's a lot, instead of this blitzkrieg approach, this dumbed down approach is everybody got to stay home for the rest of the next few months, which is what we're looking at right now. It's a much more smarter approach. The other thing, Zubin, just to mention is if we do get a drug in the months ahead, this could help direct the drug. Uh, if we do get other sensors, like, for example, there's a sensor now that you can put on the chest. It can uh, detect cough, respiration rate, heart rate uh, and body temperature. We could send those out to people where it looks like there's something going on. So there's all sorts of things that this sets up once we can get to the group of people, the right zip code. Um, where there looks like there is something going on. I, I'm a firm believer in this. And in fact, there are devices in place now in our home that listen to us. Uh, and whether it's a Google Nest or whether it's a Vivint alarm system or whether whatever it is, those systems can actually be equipped with algorithms theoretically that can recognize sounds of respiratory distress, changes in vocal patterns, other things like that that can actually alert uh, people to, that, that are in home quarantine even, if you're wearing a wearable um, oxygen monitor, other things like that, can alert your clinicians that, hey, there may be a decompensation. Because one of the interesting things that we see with this particular viral uh, pattern is that people are doing okay for about a week and then suddenly, to kit, yeah. they're, they're short of breath. They're they're hyper, yeah. they even have silent hypoxemia, and then they show up, and and you're already behind. They're intubated. And the next thing you know, it's ARDS, and they're in a prone position, fighting for their life. So there there's so much potential for technology, but the tension between people listening to us in our homes and yeah. safety is an eternal one. I mean, how how do you personally think about that, Eric? Because I I know everybody has their opinion on it, but what do you think about that tension? Well, you know, I think this is a time that we've never seen before. Um, it's a horror show, really, mm -hmm. uh, especially for those who, you know, have family members uh, who are in the hospital and maybe in, uh, in the ICU and you can't even see them. I mean, this is just, uh, it really is uh, so nightmarish. So, you know, that's when you start to think, well, what can we do uh, to try to, you know, we're so, we got so far behind as we discussed in the beginning, uh, but what can we do now? It does surrender some privacy, mm. but it seems like the appropriate trade-off. It's just like in medicine right now. I mean, who wants to go into to a, a doctor? This is not about COVID. This is about just an appointment. Who wants to go to a clinic and sit in a waiting room 
uh, or going to hospital that, you know, so we, we're, we're at a turning point in, in medicine. Uh, and it's the same thing for, you know, how do we counter this uh, big uh, crisis that we're, we're confronting? It's interesting because I think this, this will, you know, this COVID pandemic is going to have profound long-lasting cultural shift changes across society, but medicine will be the most specific. And I think you and I agree on a lot of things, Eric. Uh, and, and when you wrote that New York Times op-ed on physicians having to band together to fight what is destroying medicine, the corporatization and the, and the commodification of our profession, and yet you will also embrace that technology is a, is a crucial part of how we move forward. Well, now we're getting there because with COVID, what we're going to see is there's going to be more telehealth, there's going to be more digital devices. And instead of us fearing them and wondering how we're going to integrate them into our practice, we're going to use them, leverage them to enhance the human analog relationship that underlies all of it. And so this is the chance, right? If we, if we don't capitalize on this after this is over, then I think we've missed a huge opportunity and also to get paid to do those things. Because right. those business models have not caught up with the reality on the ground. I have an iPhone that can do more than Epic can do, right? Yes. Easily. And yet, because of HIPAA regulation, the fact that we don't get paid, all these other things, we can't, we can't make it work. I mean, what, what are your thoughts around that? Because this is really, you know, right in the wheelhouse of what you write about in your books and, and all of that. Well, you've got a lot to unpack with what you just said. There's just so much there. I mean, firstly, um, from the physician uh, and the healthcare workforce standpoint, we have been basically managed by administrators. We're the only profession that doesn't have its own people that are uh, directing things. And uh, we've, we're in this disaster of no protective um, equipment and uh, <laughs> just sitting ducks, Ooh, sitting ducks. But for, by the way, Eric... Yeah. So, Eric, we're sitting ducks, but who's to blame for that, do you think? Like, well, at the governmental level, you know, once you see the WHO alert on January 3rd that there's going to be a pandemic, uh, you might want to stock up on equipment. You know, you might want to check that, oh, you have a test ready. You might want to say, oh, do we, do we have any masks in this country? Do we have any shields? Do we have anything? So, you know, you might, of course, there was no pandemic uh, uh, group uh, because they were disbanded a couple of years prior. Um, so yeah, kind of that's, but then at the hospital level, you know, the hospitals, they, they, can, they, they can have uh, their own reflexes to see, hmm, there's something very serious going on in Wuhan. And you know what? People f fly every day from Wuhan to the United States. Maybe we ought to get our health system geared up here. Uh, none of that really happened. It wasn't taking this seriously in retrospect. But um, the, the other problem that you're getting to is telemedicine 2.0. Because today, of course, you mentioned that the reimbursement's an issue, there's regulatory issues, you know, this, this cockamamie thing about, oh, you have to have a license in the state where you're seeing the patient. I mean, that's the whole point. And there should be a national licensure, of course, and there is, but it isn't respected. That is taking the exam. But the point there is right now it's a video chat and it doesn't need to be a video chat. We have to recognize that this distance doctoring is going to be more the norm and you can equip, um, you know, the sensors. Like, for example, you could diagnose a type of pneumonia through the microphone of your smartphone with an AI algorithm. There's all sorts of things that you can do. I mean, you know, you can image your entire body except your brain with an ultrasound probe connected to a smartphone. My goodness. So we're not, we're not using this 
type of uh, technology nearly as we could. And that will take us to a different type of telemedicine because mm -hmm. we could still be uh, at a distance, but we, most of the relevant physical exam could be obtained. In fact, continuous data beyond just a one-off physical exam. So that's where we can look to in the future. Yeah, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a believer in that as long as we retain some of that human touch and human connection at the heart of it, I agree. One, one thing Boris, I think it was Kasparov said about AI, right? It's a kind of famous line of his. He said, yeah, 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 the AI beat, can beat me and pretty much any human at chess, but if you give me that AI as a tool, I can beat everything extant. I can beat computers and humans. And I think with medicine, with doctors, it's the same thing. Give us the tools and we can do wonders that no computer AI will ever replace. So I think that's where the future is. And I think this pandemic, if there's any silver lining, it's gonna be that, that we'll actually see that happening. And I couldn't agree with you more. You know, Gary Kasparov's a hero of mine and his book, Deep Thinking, gets right into your point. The, the idea, though, is the human touch is essential. It's the essence of medicine. Uh, we have to sacrifice that a bit when we have this problem of asymptomatic carriers. At least 30% of our population is an asymptomatic carrier. Mm -hmm. uh, and, of course, many of those will have the antibodies that hopefully will neutralize. Uh, we don't even know about that. The ability for spread, the ability for reinfection. We don't even know how long they last. But while we're in that zone of uncertainty, we have to start to, you know, imagine getting sick right now with a non-COVID illness. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, and, and the fact is uh, we have a real problem in delivering care because our, our healthcare workforce, if it isn't just stressed out so profoundly in certain places like New York, now Detroit and Louisiana, New Orleans, and, you know, many other locales, it's gonna be, you know, many other places in, in the weeks and months ahead. So that's why we should build our uh, distance capabilities as much as possible now. Absolutely, and one thing that very few people are talking about uh, is our colleagues in the outpatient world who do elective surgeries for a living or see patients that are well or relatively well and, and this is their bread and butter, are potentially going to go out of business. They have All to right. pay their staff, and, and if they don't have a means to see these patients remotely and get paid for it, uh, they're gonna become part of the economic casualties of all this, which it would be tragic because as it is, we don't have enough, uh, enough um, uh, manpower in, in healthcare. You're, so it's a huge you're problem. You're absolutely right. And you know, we, we were talking about at least a couple of few months in this, in this state. And as you say, people, the, the, the surgeons and proceduralists that rely on elective procedures for their for their work, uh, they're really gonna be um, in, in a pretty tough shape for, now eventually we'll get back, but then, um, you know, uh, then the problem is how many more months before this cycles back in? Right. So this is, a lot of people don't realize we're talking about, we're looking at a long story here. You know, we like to be optimistic. I know you and I are both optimists, but uh, unfortunately the reality is uh, one that's uh, much tougher than what we'd like.
Yeah, so we have to bring all our tools to bear on it. And we also have to speak, I think you and I, particularly as public figures, have a responsibility to speak rationally and calmly about this stuff and say, okay, here's some actual ideas for what can happen. And that's what I see you doing right now, which is wonderful. And by the way, I want to thank you too, because your uh, genomics conference that you host in San Diego, you uh, invited me in my early days. Uh, and it was really formative meeting the amazing people you have there talking about the intersection of bi biomedical science science, science, genomics, personalized medicine all together. And it really opened my eyes to that. And you've been really a early supporter of the work we're doing. And so as such, an, such a seminal figure in healthcare, Eric, I wanna thank you. Like I've not get, gotten a chance to thank you personally oh, boy, for that. You're very, you're very kind. You've inspired us. Uh, I think we've had you a few times to that conference uh, in, this, in the 12 years we've had it. And uh, I don't know of anybody that can uh, present and captivate uh, an audience of physicians and scientists like like you. Man, well, your five bucks is in the mail for that nice compliment. Thank you. <laughs> At this point, we can take any revenue we can get. So I think if we're going to sort of wrap this thing up, um, I'd love to hear if you have any thoughts on the cardiac sequelae, if that's something you can speak to, of uh, what we're seeing in patients with COVID-19 in the ICU. There's been a lot of reports out of Washington State that it's cardiac failure, whether it's cardiomyopathy, whether it's asystole or VTAC that is killing a lot of these patients, often suddenly even in the throes of their improvement and extubation. Any thoughts yeah. on that? Very important point. I'm glad you mentioned it. We, we basically have thought this is a lung story that just um, the once the COVID gets in the lower respiratory tract, it wreaks havoc, but it, havoc, but it actually does uh, have effects on the heart. Uh, it's not entirely understood, but uh, a report just came out uh, yesterday in JAMA Cardiology, 17% of the patients uh, in uh, the ICU setting had um, myocardial damage. Uh, and there, as you said, there's several reports of cardiomyopathy. So the question is, uh, is this related to hypoxia? Is it related to the primary lung problem? Or is there a direct hit of the virus um, uh, to the heart? A lot of that stuff is a little fuzzy, but uh, you're right about arrhythmias. And um, the idea that you would take uh, drugs like uh, chloroquinone that can make a QT interval worse, which has no data to support it. Uh, you know, th these are crazy things. So we have to respect that there, there is a cardiac uh, story that's unfolding. It's not completely sorted out. We also do know that there's been a lot of flap about ACE inhibitors and angiotensin receptor blockers, which are obviously, as you well know, commonly used in hypertension and management of heart failure. And those drugs, we, there's still no uh, resolution. Do they help? Do they hurt? We've, this paper is going both ways, but it's all a bunch of uh, unknown. Uh, it's in suspension. So no one should have those drugs discontinued. But I think the most important point is there's a direct uh, evidence of heart damage in, in, in not an insignificant number of people. That's very troublesome. Um, and um, we have to learn more about that. Yeah, there, uh, <clears throat> thank you for that insight. I mean, and, and the idea of the uh, of the quinine drugs, uh, you know, being pushed 
when they do, they can uh, cause heart arrhythmias and QT prolongation and things like that. It's very concerning in the absence of really good data. And there's stories and reports around the country of doctors trying to prescribe this stuff and hoarding it. And I think those are just bad eggs. It's not like the majority of us are that dumb. No, no, yeah. you're right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and I and you're thinking on ibuprofen and the flap around ibuprofen. What yeah, it's kind of like the ACE inhibitors. Mm. There's a much ado about nothing. There's just nothing there. It was a French group that put out a concern but when you look at all the data, the story on uh, ibuprofen and other uh, NSAIDs is just doesn't uh, have anything to back the uh, stopping that those drugs. I mean, there's just it's flimsy. Um, all this stuff, whether you, you see it on uh, um, Twitter or from Trump or wherever the source, you have to be really suspect because there's just no real uh, evidence. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you on that. That's what I've been telling people as well, and I, I'm. I'm the, the more I look into it, the more I'm convinced that's true. Um, so in terms of uh, the call to action here, Eric, I think uh, I'm going to double emphasize that people go to the website that we're going to link right here again in the description, et cetera. And if you have a Fitbit, if you have an Apple Watch, you can download this app and be a part of a solution here. Uh, and I don't, I wouldn't pitch a BS app to you guys that I thought was just going to steal your data and give it away. This is Eric Topol we're talking about at Scripps with a great group of researchers. And if there's anybody you should trust with that data, it'd be these guys. And I'm telling you that as someone who's known Eric for a long time, and he is one of the true heroes of medicine. So Eric, any parting thoughts or concerns or wisdom for uh, what we should do in these uncertain days ahead? No, I, I think we've run, gone through it. I really appreciate your, your support on this, and uh, you're amazing. Uh, we won't let the folks down that are part of this uh, tech project. Uh, hopefully, if we get a big uh, proportion of Americans uh, on, on it uh, and spread the word, you know, not just join, but hopefully let everybody else know, we can get on top of this uh, to an extent and, and, and change its natural history. Because right now, that doesn't look pretty at all. Yeah, I, 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 but you know, Eric, I'm with you though. I'm an optimist and I think um, if we make enough noise and we make sure we keep pushing the pressure and science the crap out of it, we'll actually get there. Um, it's just, we're, we're a little behind. So now we gotta apply the brakes even harder and do a little more math, but we'll get there. Um, and you're- I love that science the crap out of it. I'm, I'm with you. <laughs> so we, we have a, uh, as a side note, Eric, we have a supporter tribe on Facebook and YouTube. And so they subscribe with like a small monthly fee to get, uncensored access to me doing live shows. And there's a group, there's a couple of um, nurses in that group that created a whole set of t-shirts for the supporter tribe. And one of them just says, science the crap out of it. And it's gotten wow. wrong. Wow. So it's, um, it's a movement. Okay. It's a movement. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> that, that all being said, Eric, um, it is a, as I, you know, look at me, I'm, I'm unconsciously rubbing my face, which is the one thing you're not supposed to do. Luckily I sterilize myself every five minutes in this house and don't leave it. Um, Let's keep up the social distancing. People need to really listen to that. Uh, thank you again for being on the show. You're, again, a personal hero of mine uh, and to many out there. Um, and guys, ZPAC, uh, please do me a favor. Go to the website that we've listed. Share this show. Become a supporter on Facebook or YouTube. Subscribe, especially on YouTube. Click that little bell so you get notifications because we're not, we can't stop, won't stop when it comes to this coverage. And thank you, Dr. Topol, and everything you guys are doing down at Scripps. Stay safe out there and we out. Peace. 
Hey, it's Dr. Z. Thanks for getting through the whole episode. That's a huge accomplishment. <laughs> and so at this point, I just got to ask you for a few favors because it just helps us so much if you leave a review on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe. It, it just really helps the algorithms to get this message out to others. The second thing is email me, hello at zdogmd.com. I get all these emails personally. I can't respond to them all, but I need to hear your voice because especially on podcast, we don't have a comment section. And I wanna hear how this episode affected you, what you'd like to hear in the future, what you think we got wrong, what we think we got right, anything, anything, or just say hi. So that's really powerful. And the third thing is, Financially, it helps us a lot to support the show in any way you can. And if you go to zdogmd.com forward slash supporters, you can join our supporter tribe on your favorite platform, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, wherever. What that will get you on those platforms is live shows with me that are exclusive for supporters and access to our Zoom meetings where we talk about awakening realization and we share with each other our own experience. It's a powerful group effect. It's a community, really. And we support and love each other and share, again, through our own experience, how we're waking up. So, and that that ripples out into systems, into transforming healthcare and education and government. So it st really starts with us. So join us there if you can. Again, zdogmd.com forward slash supporters. And I'm so grateful to have you with us.